Welcome to episode 273 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings help new people find the show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I know told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 273 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Lily Robinson. Lily is a playwright, poet, actor, and community organizer. Lily's Play Mix will be presented in a special online edition presented by The Cult, February 18th to 24th. Tickets available now. Um, it's just an informal conversation. I like it that way. Um, so, um, you are described. I found a, I found a bio for you on the playwright on playwrightstheater.com mm-hmm. where you are described as a playwright, poet, actor, and community organizer. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your hyphenates. How did you like, where did, where did you start in the world of theater and how did you get from there to here? Yeah, um, so I'm trained as an actor. I went to Studio 58. And by the time at Studio, the last thing you do is a solo show, which is you have the chance to um, write and perform your own original piece. And at Studio, you know, it's mainly pretty classical uh, conservatory style training. Um, But my kind of favorite things were the physical theater classes we got to do. By the time I got to do my solo show, being able to have the options to pull on physical theater, pull on my own um, background as a writer, uh, that's kind of always, writing for me is like my primary thing that I've always done and always will do. Um, So by the time we got to do solo show, I, well, when I was at studio, I'd actually um, co-written a play that same in my final term um, for the four play festival they do there, which is like uh, current students and grads can submit a one act play and they choose a few and they get produced. So I'd written a play with a friend then and then doing solo show and getting to really be a bit more exploratory with them. blending physical theater and more traditional narrative uh, narrative and my background also as a spoken word poet. Um, Yeah. Doing that was where I was like, Oh yeah, making, making the theater myself. That's the thing that's really exciting to me. So that is, that is where the hyphens began. And then just um, coming out of studio, I started to audition a bit, started to do some film auditions and things. Um, and I also had some opportunities come up as a playwright. And so far, that's been the thing that has really taken off and that I've ended up sort of focusing on um, and and creating acting opportunities for myself through uh, my playwriting. Now, as far as doing a solo play goes, was that something that was had that was that in your mind before that project came up or like, had you seen solo shows and you were like, I want to do that? Or was that something that you hadn't considered doing until you were required to? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say I had like a, a drive to do a, a specifically a solo show. I actually kind of cheated it and I had... Uh, mine was the only speaking character, but I also had two other actors as as movers, essentially. Um, uh, 
so yeah, so I wasn't, it wasn't that I was drawn to a solo show specifically. It was just, that's the project they give you at the end of your time at studio. And, um, and that happened to be when I was like, oh, creating theater is the thing that really excites me. How did you feel like, as far as, as far as like doing a solo show, mm-hmm. is that something you would go back to or were you, are you like, I did the one I'm done? I, again, I don't have super strong feelings about it. I think when I, when I get little ideas and, and, um, when I, I have a couple sort of solo show ideas that I've started to write, um, it, and it's, it's not so much that, that the format is like particularly draws me, but I mean, one thing is really just the, the, the practical aspect of, you know, having, having a piece that showcases um, myself as a performer and as a, uh, and as a writer at the same time, when I look at other people who I look up to in the theater community and how they've sort of created launch pads for themselves through that, that practically speaking, that seems like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, But it's not that that format in particular holds any, anything that is uh, super, super special to me. Hmm. Hmm. See, it's because it, for me, years ago, before I'd ever seen a solo show, I was re- I read Daniel McIver's House, and I was like, "Oh, that's a thing." Mm-hmm. And from that time on, I was like, "One of these days, I gotta, I gotta write a solo show." Yeah. And it only took me about twenty years to get around to it. So, <laughs> but, and it's know. not easy, too, right? Like that, it's no. not. It's not. An, it feels like uh, something people sometimes underestimate as like it's maybe an easy access point to be able to like, if you can write a decent show and get into fringe and do a tour or whatever, that's a way to build your name, but it's not easy to write a good one. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's really easy to write a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, like when I picture, you know, if I were to do something to, like that, like when I, one of my Karen Hines is a big inspiration of mine and the way that she builds hers and also has again like practically built that as a modality for herself as an artist that is intriguing to me but yeah but it's hard to do it as well as someone as brilliant as Karen (laughs) yeah yes um now when did spoken word become a thing for you uh spoken word is something I've done since high school um yeah, I grew up in East Vancouver, so unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Um, and uh, in yeah, in East Van on Commercial Drive, there's a, there's a there's a cafe called Cafe de Soleil, where, and that's sort of the center of the slam poetry community here. And yeah, poetry had always just been how I the method I had to process my emotions and. Um, and I'd been drawn to performance in general since I was a kid. So when I started to become exposed to the slam community and understanding what that was, um, it, it felt like uh, a really good fit. I loved the people there. I loved, um, you know, like I think of that. That's one of the first places where I became really exposed to uh people really explicitly being like, this is a trans friendly space, like no, you know, no hate or no bullshit of any kind when you're at the slam, when you're at Cafe, Cafe de, um, and yeah. And, and so since, you know, being exposed to that as a teen, it's just kind of stuck with me as one of my modalities. Hmm. So which came first slam poetry or theater? Uh, I guess theater came first first because I started doing acting type things when I was 10 and then you know like I say like I I, I would always I've always kept journals I've always written songs and poems since I was very very little um uh but it wasn't until high school that I became aware of slam and performance poetry specifically as a form to play in mm. So what is what is what is your theater origin story? How did you well, how did you first discover theater? How did you decide that it was the thing you wanted to do? Uh, what was what was that like? How did you get how did you get to where you are? Like how did how did the journey start for you? Yeah, um, uh, when 
I mean, yeah, like I said, since I was little, little, I was always sort of an attention hog in terms of I liked to sing for people. I liked to dance for people. I was always drawn to different uh, anything I could get into in terms of performance. Um, and my first chance to really uh, access acting specific stuff was there is this um, uh nonprofit called Vancouver Youth Theatre and they had uh, bursaries for low-income families and that was how that specific program allowed me to be able to afford to uh, to take like a, a thorough theatre class um, and so that's how I started that that was where you know when I was 10 or so that's when I was like oh these are my people like mm. all these little theatre weirdo misfit kids like this, this these people understand me yeah. um, and so I went to, uh, so when I got into high school, I specific, there happened to be a high school with a really uh, excellent after school um, theater program right near where I lived anyway. And, and, uh, and specifically, you know, low barrier, it wasn't like some kind of academy or something. It was just, you show up after school and they did a ton of fundraising, Templeton, um, they still do, do a ton of fundraising to bring professionals to uh, teach the students. Hmm direct the plays and everything and so so I did that through high school and then everyone was talking about Studio 58 as the place to go and um, I got a scholarship through my high school that paid for my tuition and um, yeah I kind of just didn't look back like I had I had some people tell me not to bother going to theater school and I always find it funny there's people who are like you know high up successful arts professionals be like don't waste your time and money. But by that point, I already had a scholarship. So I was like, well, yeah. kind of a moot point. Like, I, I I, love this and I want to do this and it's paid for now. So I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. I always find that interesting. The whole, like, don't bother going to theater school. Just go ahead and do it. Um, <clears throat> I always feel like, yes, that works for some people. Mm-hmm. And other people can really use you know, a place to train and learn and, and all that sort of thing. It's, it seems pretty limiting to tell somebody, Oh, don't, don't go to school to study that. Just go out and, and, and do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know how I feel about it at this point. Cause I have complicated feelings about um, theater training institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the point, but, but I don't feel like I have, like when people ask me if they should go to studio or if they should go to a theater training, institution like that like I don't really know what to say anymore because Mm. um like certainly I feel like yeah I feel like it's worth it to have training (laughs) and just going back to just the the idea of it is like yeah I feel like it's worth it and it it, Mm. I don't know it formalizes it in some way that feels like a, a stepping stone you know and certainly in terms of networking it helps a lot right um but I think the uh the consequences on a lot of people's mental health and uh, uh, self-esteem and uh, regard for themselves. You know, I think a lot of people come out of theater school more distant from that sense of their passion and their artistry than when they got in. Right. And, and uh, a lot of people come out of theater school pretty broken mental health wise. I was, I was going to say exactly that phrase, like, because, you know, I think, there's there's an old school attitude that uh, some theater teachers have had where, and you know, they used to say this when I was in theater school way back in the ancient days. Um, they would say, you know, what we do is we, 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 you know, we break you down and then we build you back up. Yeah. And I always felt like you guys do a great job of breaking people down, but it isn't supposed to be breaking down the bad acting habits not breaking the person down because you guys do a great job of breaking us down as people, but you're not doing a great job of building us back up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think a lot of people come out of theater school feeling pretty lost because of mm-hmm. at best. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> lost at best. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I had, I've always, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> for me, I came out of theater school sort of sharpened in my purpose of what I needed to do as an artist. Mm-hmm. And I think, 
you know, that just happens to be the combination of circumstances that were for me. And, and as well as I had certain privileges in terms of how I relate to the system and in terms of who I am, what my identity is, the lightness of my skin color, all these things that made it easier for me to get through that system. But mm-hmm. also the things that I observed in people that happened to people close to me and um, just in general, the way what we were taught and how we learned um, informed my understanding of what it meant to be stepping into the professional world as a black theater artist Mm -hmm. and as an artist of color and, um, and what I needed to be responding to, you know, Mm -hmm. like my, my play mix that is the, the biggest thing I've done so far in my, my debut play. Um, uh, A big part of what, started that idea was thinking about okay now I'm here in the professional world and um I know by now like what this weird dynamic is of how artists of color and and there's a specific dynamic with black artists are consumed by by audience but also you know my experience so far had been by teachers by um other students by you know and and again like it's I I had a fairly easy time of it but it was it's still um that was a big uh, like trigger for for starting the sort of line of inquiry that mix is for me yeah yeah I mean I I've been I mean as I as it's 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 funny because um you know I graduated from theater school in 19 19- 93. Um, and it's amazing how much you would turn in your mind to think about theater school. Um, both in terms of um, what, what you learned and, Oh, that sometimes it's like, that's the lesson they were trying to teach me. If only they could have just said that or yeah. something like that, yeah. but also um, realizing even like 30 years later or whatever, like, Oh my God, that was such a toxic environment. Totally. Not realizing how toxic the environment was. Yeah. You know, to, you know, going through, you know, first, first semester and then finding out in the middle of your first year that there are people who get cut from the program. You didn't know and ahead of time? No one. I, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think somebody mentioned it in passing, but it never seemed real. Uh huh. You know, somebody was like, oh, so sometimes people get cut and you don't think about it. Uh huh. And then all of a sudden, you you end up uh, you see it happening, and then you're afraid for the rest of your time in theater school. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you get told things like, you know, there's no right and there's no wrong, but you also get told, no, that's wrong. You know, well, you don't yeah, want to yeah. rock the boat. You don't want to be wrong. They're going to kick you out if you do any of these things. Yeah. And that's no environment for creativity. No. No. <laughs> And it's, 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 it's going to be different for, uh, for a black artist. Um, when I was in theater school in my class, um, there were no people of color from, uh, a second year on. Yeah. And it's funny. Like we used to joke about, like, especially in the, the first half of my um, time at studio that you can look back through the grad photos and find yourself. So like there was always the one light skinned, black person usually Mm -hmm. a mixed uh person of european and african descent you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's changed now it's really interesting to see uh as we're seeing you know uh, across the theater industry now um this sort of like hyper like we've got to get them in here get the people of color in like put them in the pictures (laughs) yes yes and and and, uh whether it's from pure intentions or not, or more likely both. Um, uh, yeah, that was definitely, you know, by the time I was soon to be graduating, we were sort of seeing that in our, in the incoming uh, classes was that there was suddenly a lot of diversity racially in the kids and the students. Um, but that doesn't mean the institution or the people teaching you or mm-hmm. any of the ways of, uh, working have adapted to suit the needs of these new new demographics you're bringing in. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the thing that people are starting to grapple with. You know, especially. I mean, it's it's ri- ridiculous that it's taking this long, but I also think 
that theater schools move at a slower pace than the industry as a whole. Totally. Like, it's only re- like is, it, from what I've been able to find out, it's only relatively recently that a lot of theater schools are teaching people about self-production. Yeah. But that's been a big part of the industry for at least 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like at studio, they give you some tools around like creating your own work, which I appreciate and was partly Mm. why I was interested in studio. But um, definitely the overall mindset is like we produce working actors and working actors are actors who put their heads down and do what they're told Mm. and work extremely hard. um, And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> to the detriment of their mental and physical health, right? Like, is the see that's the other thing. <laughs> it's like you know, theater school also teaches you that a twelve-hour day is you know that's just regular, yeah, or whatever. You know, just just work. You know, you're sick. Well, you like fine, be sick. But like, if you're sick again, we're kicking you out. Yeah, and the the one that I come back to a lot now is uh, say yes to everything. That whole thing, I yeah. I uh, I got extremely. Uh, I burnt out to the point of hospitalization, essentially, mm. because of following that. Yeah. <laughs> because I had yeah. to get a, a number of opportunities um, a few months out of theater school. And because I had been taught this sort of scarcity mindset, which, you know, there's reasoning to that. But also, like, this thing of uh, saying yes to everything and that you'll figure out how to make it all work, right? So I did that. And I was in, and then there's also the, the element of, at that time I was in like, my financial uh, situation was precarious, right? And um, so feeling like I need to take all the opportunities that'll grow my career, but also I need to take some, uh, you know, shifts at the coffee shop so I can pay my bills. And I need to do all of these things and say yes to everything. And I ended up extremely stressed out, extremely burnt out, um, and with a terrible, mysterious gut infection that put me in the hospital for eight days. And then miraculously, mysteriously, after eight days of just lying down and doing nothing, the whatever was going on in my gut went away. They never figured out what it was. Uh, But what I took from it was it was my body being like, you need to stop. Yes. (laughs) To rethink what the hell you're doing um, grinding like this. Yeah. Well, your body will always tell you. Yeah. In very, with no uncertain terms. Um, It's, you know, because, you know, back when I was in theater school, they also said say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. For me, that lasted about five years of just uh, of uh, before I was like, you know what? I'm going to say no to some things. Yeah. You know? Um, it's all well and good to say, say yes to everything. You'll figure out how to handle it. But if you don't give people tools, if you don't teach people that at a certain point they have to listen to their body and say no, you yeah. are doing them a disservice. And there's a reason why so many people leave theater school and within five years they're no longer acting yeah. or creating. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, have so much to say about that, but, but especially right now, I think the new layer to the conversation is artists of color, especially. And I think young artists of color coming out of theater school, um, you know, we're in this unique moment, again, this, this grab for all the POCs that companies can get. And I think it's really important that, that young artists of color, uh, theater artists of color are aware that it's really important to choose who you're saying yes to right now and to do that research before you get engaged with different companies who uh, may or may not have your best interests at heart, whether they're even conscious of, of, or most likely they don't understand what your best interests are. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. They probably don't. And, uh, and so I think that's really important now. And I, I doubt that that, layer of the conversation is widely being talked about at theater schools right now because most of our theater institutions are still mainly like majority majority staffed by white people mm-hmm. i think to this point at studio they're they're doing a better job now of uh bringing in um like guest instructors who are diverse um at least racially mm-hmm. but uh but still in terms of permanent staff, I think they have one person of color now. Yeah. And that's, that's not uncommon. I, you know, there's also the whole idea of, 
of you know all of these the- yes you're you're right all the theater companies are like we need to bring in people of color we need that you know all of this falling over themselves but <laughs> if that's only on the stage mm-hmm. if the office is still white exactly. and the staff is white and the production team is still white then that's still a disservice to the people of color well, and that's a conversation that I think is starting to bubble up more and more now, right? Is that it's not just mm-hmm. about making your, the faces of your marketing and your stages diverse. Mm-hmm. It's about, are there people of color and people of other marginalized backgrounds in positions of power and decision-making mm-hmm. positions? And um, yeah, it's, it you know, with all the statements coming out following uh, the uprising in June and, and, you know, the whole aftermath of of George Floyd's murder. um, Just looking across the board and seeing the only artistic director who stepped down was Catherine Hernandez, who, and I don't know that much about Be Current or even about her, but just seeing that the only uh, artistic director who would step down to make way for a black or indigenous person was a, was a woman of color. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just so telling to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's all well and good that we are having those conversations. Yeah. You know, every theater in Canada and everywhere put out their black lives matter statement, Mm -hmm. you know, and for some of them, we rolled our eyes at some of them (laughs) um, because you look at their history and Mm -hmm. all that, but um, I think the conversations and the theaters that have been willing to engage in conversations mm-hmm. and to commit to changes. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason, like if it was not for the pandemic and the shutdown of the theaters, the conversations wouldn't be happening mm-hmm. because we'd be in the steamroller uh, of, of production, the never ending production cycle. Mm-hmm. But because we're quiet, because the theaters are quiet, the conversations are happening, mm-hmm. um, which is good. It's just too bad that the excuse of it's just it's too busy to have these conversations has been used for so long. Yeah, and I think you know I feel like the conversations have been starting even before the pandemic, but at, you know depending what who you're talking about, certainly. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, but the more like the more. Uh, serious reflection I think is is this thing that is there's more space for now that uh for most people you know production is paused but what I keep saying to people is like the thing that's really going to be telling is when when more places have seasons again and have their mm-hmm. programming coming out and we're going to see mm-hmm. real quick who's um uh putting action to their words right like through who you're hiring through what you're choosing to produce it's going to be very self-explanatory very quickly <laughs> yeah i i absolutely agree and i i think that that you know once productions once seasons start happening again we're going to be looking at these companies and we're going to see whose statement was just fashion yeah and who actually meant it yeah and i think anybody whose statement was just fashion we have to take that statement and remind them that they made it and hold them to it yeah yeah that's the good thing about it is that there is a paper trail now <laughs> yes Yes. It's not just words that somebody said, like in an office somewhere, yeah. it was made publicly and now we can go back and hold their feet to the fire. <laughs> how has, how have you been during the pandemic? Are you, are you keeping creative? Are you just sort of throwing that out the window for mental health or, or like, how has the pandemic been for you? Yeah. Um, well, for me, the summer and the fall was all uh was so consumed with grief um because the the uh sort of tidal wave of death (laughs) of black Mm. death was uh brutal was brutal both at the hands of police um both prior to george floyd you know ahmed arbery um, and I, I think Breonna Taylor's death was also actually before George Floyd. You know, there were mm-hmm. there were people that number of, of trans women, black trans women in the states, who were killed mm-hmm. leading up to that. I think DeAndre Campbell was a man mm-hmm. in Toronto who was murdered in February. So it was like this string even bef- of deaths of murders even before um, 
George Floyd. And then, of course, in the, all the unrest over the summer afterwards, both that and um, the ongoing toll of, of the pandemic on Black life and, mm-hmm. uh, and also, you know, Latino and Indigenous folks as well are, are uh, disproportionately dying from mm-hmm. um, COVID, especially, you know, we have the, num- the hard numbers from the states mm-hmm. that takes less, uh, does, p- there are fewer institutions counting these kinds of demographics here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but that grief was, for me, again, like how I process is through poetry. So mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of poetry happening in the, in the summer and the fall, um, processing all that grief. Um, and throughout, you know, before the pandemic, I joined uh, the Arts Club has uh, a program called the Emerging Playwrights Unit. So that started in February and it's intended that you uh, work on the creation of a first draft and you meet once uh, over the course of about a year and you meet once a month. So we met once in person and then the rest <laughs> online. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I wrote the first draft of a play through that. And as much as it was really hard to work on that sometimes because it's less, the, the piece I wrote is, uh, I still feel is, you know, has important social commentary, but it's not as directly about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, those kinds of issues as, say, Mix is. Mm. But, um, so yeah, so it was hard to be working on that other piece, but the the structure of that program, you know, made it so that by the end of December, you know, I did have another draft of another show. Mm. Um, And then in the fall, I've been working, in the fall and winter, I've been working on rewriting mix because we're going to be putting that up at the Couch uh, in February, this coming February, a few weeks from now, really. Um, so I was rewriting the play to both reflect what's happened socially in our world and also to make it uh, doable for a live stream because mm. um, that's how we'll be producing it. And yeah, it's a clown show, right? So it, a lot of it, a lot of it is reliant on. Uh, interaction with the audience and also like being uh, speaking to what's really happening in real mm. time, both in the room and in the world. So there's yeah. a lot of updating that I wanted to do. So that, mm. that's what I've been doing as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been kind of busy, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> well, heading into, into producing and, and sort of reworking something for, for live stream. Yeah. Um, what what have you had to take into account for a live stream that you that you wouldn't have had to even think about for for doing it in a in a theater? So many things, so many. Things. <laughs> and I'm lucky to have a, a brilliant dramaturge, Joanna Garfinkel, and a brilliant producer, Sean Isodi, who are helping me um, figure out all the pieces. And our directors, of course, are Donna Michelle Saint Bernard and Jiv Parasaram. Um, But yeah, for myself as a writer, um, like the core, the other core question that that spurred Mix to to creation um, was how do you tackle and and challenge in real time the dynamic of white spectatorship in audience and Mm. consumption of black uh, bodies on stage? And so one of the big things uh, dramaturgically for me was figuring out how do you do that when you can't see your audience and when they're not there in the room. The show used to have a lot of, uh, you know, bringing people up on stage and going into the audience and looking them right in the eye as you said stuff and that kind of thing. And so figuring out what is is the equivalent um, and what are the tools at our disposal to, uh, to use to create, you know, a digital screen-based equivalent to that experience. How has how have you been tackling like in terms of the technology? How have has it been overwhelming, or have you been excited by it? Is it entirely new? Uh, uh, tell me about 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 that. Yeah, I've I've been pretty excited by it. The other thing we're we're really lucky. Like so, we won um, the Cultivating the Fringe Award, which is. Uh, here in Vancouver, the Kulch, um basically like 
basically picks up a show from each year's Vancouver Fringe and gives it a platform, uh, you know, puts them in uh, their next season. So we had won the Cultivating the Fringe Award in 2019. And um, so now we have access to their digital storytelling team. So they're helping Mm. us um, figure out some of the, the, you know, bits and bobs about how we actually make these things happen. But basically, um, Joanna, who's the dramaturge for Mix, and I sort of, um, you know, combined the knowledge of like things we had been watching over the summer, uh, over the summer mm-hmm. webinars we've been in participating in, and you know, looking at the tools of what has been successful or not to make an experience feel engaging. Um, so like the live chat, for example, is mm. that element is something we're going to be leaning on a lot as, as, you know, sort of a surrogate for, to make it feel like we, the, the presence of the audience affects what's happening in the show is a, is an important part of the show. Um, mm. so, so we're, we're looking at a few different tools to like keep that feeling throughout the show, but the live chat is probably the most important one. Um, that we've decided to to use. Hmm. That's so that's so interesting. It's the the you know there's we've all sort of been fumbling in the dark. Yep. <laughs> as far as as far as figuring out digital. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, I was I thought I might do a digital production. Uh, I opted out of the live stream and I made it an audio podcast. So I did that, um, but that was after a lot of like, what could I do? you know, investigating and talking to people and, 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 and seeing what people were doing. Um, The longer it takes for the theaters to reopen, the more innovation I think we're seeing in live stream theater. Totally. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that we continue to see theater live streamed from theaters after this is all over. Yeah. I know, and there's been a lot of really uh, exciting conversation around the different access um, mm-hmm. needs that this can address, like that we've been forced <laughs> to start engaging with because yeah. the theater, you know, community on the whole, I think, has not, or or is starting to, is starting to engage more with questions of accessibility. But everything being forced online has definitely proven that that is a doable thing. Yes. Um, and yeah, yeah, I feel lucky to also, you know, just since graduating from theater school, the companies that I've worked most closely with um, here in Vancouver, Theater Replacement, Rumble Theater, those kinds of independent companies that are used to innovating on the fly and and looking across medium to um, uh, just to experiment and to find out different ways of, of making theater and telling stories. And I think those companies who are already primed and and excited about exploring uh, these different ways of telling stories are the companies that are going to continue to flourish, you know? Yeah. And when will we be able to see Mix on a live stream? It will be. uh, We open February 18th, and I believe we close February 21st. Nice. So theculch.com. It's the place awesome. for all the things. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, what about um, joy? In terms of, you know, we talk, you, we've been talking about, you know, uh, uh, the, the grief and, 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 and all of the other stuff. But we can never get through our day without moments of joy, without finding joy. Mm-hmm. Um, through this pandemic and through... Uh, the, the 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 protests through through the grief and everything else. How what what joy have you found? What's what's gotten you through the day? Hmm. Yeah, for me, it's been um, finding ways to tend to my body because, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I was having real trouble like sitting down in front of a computer or anything like that. Well, car alarm is just going off. You can probably hear that. Yeah, it's the sounds of the city. <laughs> city there you go got it stopped (laughs) okay um is uh yeah is like yoga you know uh yoga 
walks, naps, you know, things to things to rest and also to, uh, to try and energize and tend to my body. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's such a, it's so easy to like dissociate and be like, what is actually happening? And, and for me, as one of the consistent ways I'm able to find some joy and some pleasure is to just come back to, to being in my body. Yeah. You know, I think people discount the importance of a good nap. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> there's, I have to plug the thing. The, there's this brilliant performance artist, intellectual, brilliant person named Trisha Hersey from the States. And she runs this, um, this, it's more, it's, it's like a whole art project, but you can find her, uh, her Instagram is the nap ministry and, um, her whole methodology is around, uh, rest as reparations. Like oh. for those of us who are descended from, uh, from slaves, um, you know, that, that, when you're in that kind of situation, you have to take rest, rest is survival, right? Mm. And that now as descendants of enslaved people, um, our reparations are through, you know, taking a nap and not like, not, um, uh, not serving capitalism, you know, taking, mm. taking the resistance of, no, my body is important. My 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 well being is the most important thing, and is and that's revolutionary, right? And that's starting to be picked up more and more. But I think mm -hmm. uh, just this idea of of that our well being is actually and the well being of our communities are more important than anything else. <laughs> and if we can come back to doing that and doing that work in a like a really um, deep way uh that that's the start of like of uh creating a world that we can actually continue to live in late stage capitalism tells us that if we're not busy we are we're there's something wrong yeah. and you're right like the uh, a nap is an act of rebellion yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely and it's hard, um, right? A lot of us get guilty. I get Oh my god, so much. <laughs> guilty about resting. I just had to do one of those things where you go on your Instagram story and you write something thoughtful, but it's really just a reminder to yourself, but it seems like you're preaching to the world. I had mm -hmm. to do that for myself to be like, it's okay to not have energy. When I'm out of energy, that's just my body telling me I got to take a break. I got to rest today and do less. And doing less is actually a good thing is literally what my body is asking me to do. It's not something to be guilty about because I didn't do as much as someone else that day, you know? Yeah. I mean, how many people hit that point where they should listen to their body, take a rest, take a nap, but what they do is they pop open a Red Bull and they they just keep going. And that's what we're trained to do. That's what we're told is the thing you're supposed to do. And it's, and that uh, going back to the theater school conversation, like that's a huge um, unlearning that I had to do. And the thing mm -hmm. that I find so ironic is that theoretically, like as an actor, you're being trained to listen to your body, right? And all your voice <laughs> classes, all of that, you're being trained to listen deeply to your body. And mm -hmm. then every other aspect of your schooling is telling you to override what your body is doing so that you can keep going for that crew call so that you can keep going for that rehearsal for that 14 hour day, right? So it's yeah. like very contradictory. It's so contradictory. I don't know how they expect anybody to, is there any, any wonder why so many people come out of high, uh, out of out of theater school a little bit broken yeah. or a lot broken? Yeah, they're we're, they're told both, like you said, listen to your body, ignore your body, say yes to everything, um, you'll figure it out. Yeah, and like and that it's that there's a lot that's not analyzed in terms of um, <laughs> like if you're having trouble listening to your body as an actor or as any performer, it's probably because they've been forcing you to override your body <laughs> yes. to be in order yes. to be in that institution. That's what you have yes. to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think, I don't think the institute, the people running these institutions even realize are cognizant of that contradiction. Well, no, because I think a lot of them, and this is why I think that whole, um, as far as like the the way that a lot of theater schools do the whole like we're gonna break you down and build you back up and it's so toxic 
because that's how they learn. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of, well, I guess that's how I learned. So that's how, how it has to be. And not a whole lot of thinking about, wait a minute, maybe I didn't learn that much from that, or maybe it was the wrong way to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things of like, uh, a lot of, of systems change, right? Is like mm-hmm. when you start talking about these issues with the way the whole thing is run, it's scary to people because it because it's like, oh, but, but if we don't do that, then we don't know how we're doing it. It's a vacuum. It's like, no, we actually, I think the moment we're in now, and, and this for me, uh, my access to this kind of idea has come out of um, Adrienne Marie Brown's work and uh, which comes out of a long lineage of black feminist thinking around um, we have to be visionary, you know, we have to imagine the new way of doing things that would be better. We have to dare to imagine what would actually serve all of our needs and, and say that that's possible and then figure out how to make that possible. And that sort of complete overhaul of structures, uh, I think is really scary to people, but it, I think it's also like growing this, um, growing this habit and this practice of of, of imagining and of uh, of actually. Again, this is one of those things they tell you in theater school, but but it, a lot of us don't do is to actually go for what you want. Like if we can dare to actually imagine the thing that would benefit the most people rather than just obsessing about well that's going to cost this or this is these are all the limitations we just have, we have to figure those out as we go but you know building on that like what a time to be reinventing how theater schools work yeah when we can't be in the theater school and so everything is changing anyway and yet they are in the theater schools and this is and this is the other funny thing is that i think and uh on on all sides of all spectrums in the theater world, I think there's still somehow this push to keep producing, to keep doing things, to try and keep things on track that I think is actually getting in the way a little bit of the potential of what if we just stopped for a while and really gave ourselves the time to pause? Because I know studio is still doing online classes and I think a lot of the other big ones are as well. Mm. it's this funny thing of people are still trying to keep up even when we have been offered this opportunity to pause. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, in terms of like the online stuff, like online theater school or whatever that looks like, like that's not the same as being in the room. Yeah. So you're already reinventing what, what it looks like. So if we go, when we get, go from that back into being in the room together those two things can't look the same anymore. Mm. Like it, when we return to the room, it won't be the same as when we left. So why shouldn't it be a complete re- reinvention of, of how theater schools have traditionally operated? And I hope, I hope that that, that thought is carried forward. Cause I think that's exactly it. Um, mm. I think the why is that it changes who's in power. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, this is something I've thought about a lot in the last year while it at times it's been so frustrating to be like, you know, we, the change that has all people have already been calling for, for years and years and years, you know, people at the forefront of these conversations, people like Carmen Aguirre, artists, activists like that have been calling for this kind of stuff. This is not new. Right. But um, now that there's no way to pretend you haven't heard it, it's very frustrating to feel like, people are still uh, not actually taking the action. But I have to remind myself, um, and this at least gives me some level of understanding, is that, you know, it's it's human nature to hold on to power. And not that that excuses it, but we do what we need to to feel, or what we think we need to, to feel safe, right? And so it's, it's, it, it takes a lot of integrity and wisdom to be able to step away from power and realize that you're going to be okay. <laughs> and I think what we're seeing is a lot of people holding on to power because they think if they let go of it, even if they have lots of other places, they could, they have power. But if they let go of that artistic director position or whatever place of power it is, that you know they're going to be eaten by the wolves or whatever it is. Yeah. And also, I mean, if your identity is artistic director of X, (laughs) 
And we've seen that. There have been people who were artistic director of X for like ages and they created companies in their image that sort of stagnated just like they did. Mm. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're, if, if, if your interest is in remaining artistic director for as long as possible, then you never bring in new blood. You do things the way that you always did. Yeah. And that's just a recipe for toxicity, for stagnation. And I don't know, like, continuing a white supremacist theater totally and then and then there's the other part that we're kind of coming to now of like okay so we'll put BIPOC people in charge that's the thing we're supposed to do right and we're coming to this point where um uh there the 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 whole is that a lot of BIPOC folks we the barriers that there have been for folks of all different marginalized communities to being in theater I mean there has not been leadership training for us. We have not had access to leadership training. And so there, th that is the other thing that is, that is starting to happen is people are getting thrown into positions or being asked to take on these positions. Um, and, and there's this combination, I think uh, I, I'll speak certainly from other uh, like young uh folks from marginalized communities who are starting to look at these opportunities and be like, I feel like I, um, I feel like I can potentially have something to give here. You know, I feel like my voice matters here. Like I can be a leader here, but uh, the barriers that I've faced to getting here mean both <laughs> my own confidence in being able to do that. And also uh, the hard training skills, right? So there's that element of, we're trying to throw BIPOC folks into these artistic directors roles when um, there isn't, it's like, uh, I want to say this the right way. It's like without realizing uh, or well, for one thing, just putting a ton of pressure on those mm -hmm. individuals who are thrown into those roles. And then further down the line, the people who the other, you know, younger BIPOC generation that is coming up is looking to like, okay, how do I get the training and the training that is not in a white supremacist um, uh -huh. uh, pattern or lineage uh, to be able to do that and to do that in, to take those positions on in a decolonial way and to, to make the change that everyone is expecting of, you know, whatever mm -hmm. brilliant BIPOC leader you're going to throw in. Like that's so much pressure. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's the next thing that we're going to be figuring out. Yeah. Two things. I have two things to add to that. One is you, you know, you, you find your, 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 your BIPOC um, uh, artistic director and you bring them in um, and that person answers to the board. Yes. Is the board, does the board have black and indigenous and people of color on it as well? Yeah. Or is it a bunch of white people watching their, 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 the, the BIPOC artistic director that they brought in expecting them to fail so they can go back to the way it was exactly. or not supporting them is the board made up of, of of the people who who are who are represented and who need to be represented exactly and and i've heard i don't know enough about board governance and structure yet mm -hmm. i'm starting to learn through i'm doing a program with rumble where we're uh we're starting to learn that kind of stuff so 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 that we can start to answer these very questions yeah. um but but yeah, but that that feels like this other conversation that is like just starting to creep in of like oh geez we got to figure out how all the you know the problems of that structure which is yeah. undermining yeah exactly like you're saying is undermining yeah. a lot of change right now yeah the other thing to add to the whole artistic director conversation is that I think it's a shame that that every theater company does not have built into it a like multiple artistic directors doing different things. Uh-huh. Artistic director of this, artistic director of that, artistic director of this, and who can then take on and mentor yeah. associate and assistant artistic directors so that the leadership training exists and can happen in the workplace yeah. so that when there is a shift again, when we need to go to and find another artistic director, we are not looking for another 
artistic director from America, from England, yeah, somewhere else in the country. That the artistic director of a theater in 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 Vancouver should come from the community in Vancouver. Yes, it's like this this piece about decentralization of knowledge, right? Which is Mm -hmm. something that. Um, Rumble is really is a pillar that they've taken up, and that's where I've learned some of this about. Um, yeah, is is so like you say, is so essential. Just just that, like, like I feel like you saying that just sort of opened my brain to like, oh yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't why can't you have a bunch of different artistic directors like that? You know, yeah. I think it's the practice of that kind of just being like, why not? Um, yeah. Is is a big part of it and and exactly what you're saying of like finding ways to make mentorship more feasible so that more people have these skills and again I think the key is to recognizing that the elitism that is built into western theater um, Mm -hmm. works in opposition to that that the way our theater models are structured is to keep a small number of people who pass around the power and support each other in staying with that power, the rich white elite. Like that's what our theater system is built for. And we have to recognize, recognize that we are pulling against that existing structure and the, the existing goals of that structure. And it's like, it reminds me of, um, talking about white supremacy and racism, it's, if you call someone a white supremacist and a racist, they're not going to be very excited about thinking about it. (laughs) It's like, or if it's like any, like working with kids, like behavioral things, right? You try to separate the behavior, the problematic behavior from the worth of the child. (laughs) You're not Mm -hmm. telling the child, you're a terrible child because you hit that other kid. It's like, well, there are other ways that will be better for all of us to communicate other than hitting the other kid, right? I think yeah. the same kind of thing of of um, pulling apart pulling apart the 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 structure which exists to serve itself and is oppressive and also serves certain people. But mm. the people are not the structure. Some people really have fused with it, but but I think it's a lot more generative to be able to look at the system, look at the structure, um, and certainly identify when people are acting to prop that up. But um, you know, look at it, looking at it from a systems lens more than from a those people are white supremacists mm-hmm. who need to burn burn them down before they burn yeah. us down. Which they you know it's like, and it's hard. It's hard yeah. when when shit is violent. People yeah. are coming, you know, like we saw at the Capitol last week, like we're mm-hmm. seeing all over. It's hard to do that kind of separation of yeah. system from person. But certainly coming back to the theater community, I think it's it's important to at least um, be conscious of that. Yeah. I've been wondering why in the theater, and this is, this is a rhetorical question, so <laughs> I, I, neither of us has the answer to this, but why do we treat our theaters the same way that a financial institution does why do we have a ceo why do we have that one person or or our tech startup we have our <laughs> our our founder of the tech startup and everybody looks up to that person like they're steve jobs so they treat them like they're a god in that company <laughs> yep. why do we run our theaters like that mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah. you said it's rhetorical but it's like yeah it's capitalism <laughs> Nope. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And so just being conscious of how these systems work. And if we want something else, we've got to look at new systems. Yeah. 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 And change is hard. And uh, there's a lot of, I've been, been, another thing I've been thinking of recently is like, you know, the Canadian theater uh, uh, ecosystem Mm -hmm. sort of sprouted in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the government was like, there's here's money form these things and a lot of those theaters and the theaters that we have now were formed then and still exist and we haven't seen a similar growth since then yeah and and it's interesting you bring that up because that again this cohort that i'm in at rumble right now um we were just last time we met was talking about this that that um 
I think the same sort of period of growth that you're talking about was the government looking to manufacture Canadian culture, right? To yes. manufacture this idea of that of a nationalism, really, for mm-hmm. for its citizens to subscribe to, and and I fo- I've found that really uh, mind opening in terms of looking at looking at the the purpose behind something like that, right? We think mm-hmm. I think art at its best is. Um, something beyond that, something freer than that, but realizing how a nation, how a colonial nation state has manufactured an art Mm. industry to serve itself um, makes sense of why things are the way they are and why, why it feels literally like going against the current to, to be in sort of a counterculture way of making art or, or when you're looking at things, uh, for look, making art from a more decolonial standpoint, these kinds of things. Yeah. Well, when the when the origin is colonial, yeah. you know, <laughs> then it's gonna keep perpetuating itself. Yeah. 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 Lily, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you for asking such great questions. 